invite you to turn to the letter of James. James. I've titled this series that we're going to go through through the book of James, Life Under the Lordship of Christ. Life Under the Lordship of Christ. I'd like to read our verse for this morning. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you so much for the joy that it is to gather again and bring our attention upon your truth. This marvelous letter that you have preserved in your word so that we might align our lives in joyful submission to the Lordship of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our standing before you is based upon His righteousness imputed to us. And I thank you so much, Lord, that now we have the joy of living out what it looks like to live under the Lordship of Christ. And I pray, Father, as we start this new series through the book of James, that you would open our hearts and lives And that we would not just fill our minds with more truth, but that truth would penetrate deep in our hearts. That it arrests our affections, our attitudes, our thoughts, and our priorities. So that we may live to your glory. Father, that is our greatest joy. To worship you as you deserve. Thank you for making that not only possible, but actual in the lives of your people. All because of your faithfulness. Teach us. Teach us. Instruct us. Correct us. Put us in the path of righteousness for your namesake. And may we, by the end of this letter, be more faithful instruments in your hands for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A gracious heart is like a piece of good ground that having received the seed of mercy produces a crop of obedience. So I was thinking about our, how do you begin a series and, and um, like this in the book of James, I thought, hey, that one actually speaks. People understand that. We live in the area where crops are grown. <laughs> and what an awesome, awesome truth that Thomas Watson says here, that because of the mercy of God, penetrating our hard hearts, saving us through the precious work of Christ, what ought to be the The produce is a heart of obedience to him. A heart of obedience. And so we come to a new milestone for us in our church once again as we start the book of James. And as I thought of, and for a while now, thinking of what would be the next step after investing years and years in beholding the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, not just in my own preaching, but also in Pastor Brian's preaching through, through the book of Philippians and through Colossians, what would, what would be the next logical conclusion to our life and to our church in response to the glory of Jesus Christ? And I could think of no other or even a greater book than that of the book of James. Book of James being the first New Testament letter written shortly thereafter, give it about 13, 14 years after the life and death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. James writes 
to the believers, to the, to the Jewish Christian believers, that, that Jerusalem church, to encourage them to, to, to take what they knew about Christ, what has been entrusted to them about Christ, and to not lose heart, but to live for Him. And so James says, you, know what, you want to know what the right response to the glory of God in the face of Christ He says, it is a life in submission to His Lordship. What should be the responsibility of believers who claim to believe in Christ, who who have a right understanding of Jesus? That Jesus has has complete and full reign and ownership and, and rule over our attitudes, our actions, and our words. That Jesus has complete rule over our plans, our work, our money, our priorities, our suffering. And as a gracious master who laid down his life to rescue us from our doomed destruction in hell, which we deserve, he alone deserves our complete worship. See, all who claim to have a relationship with Jesus will show, according to James, by their lives, by their actions. And these actions are rooted and grounded in their love for Christ because of Christ's love for them. And so this morning, as we look at the book of James, we're going to consider for for this morning in verse 1, and who knows how long we will spent in the book of James. Some uh, commentaries that I have and some pastors have preached this for many, 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 many years. Others, in a very short, brief time, I have no idea. We'll just jump in there and as we take chunk by chunk by chunk or verse by verse or even possibly phrase, um, who knows what God will do in our time together. But for this morning, I want us to consider... Uh, the letter of James, and verse 1 really helps us to serve and set the tone for the rest of the letter. And we're going to consider and look at three lessons that will prepare us, not only for the study of the book of James, which, again, that's the design, I believe, verse 1 has for us, not only to prepare us for that kind of study, but also for a life of worshipful obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ. And the first lesson is this. God saves in His timing and in His way. God saves in His timing and in His way. You see, the reality is that the fact that the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ is writing this letter demonstrates the sovereign grace of God over our salvation. He saves in His timing And in his way. And so as we approach this letter, we come to first an understanding of who is this James? Who is this James? Well, the name James is popular in the New Testament, occurs over 42 times. And of of all those names compiled together, when you begin to investigate, there are really only four options in the New Testament who bear the name James and can be a candidate for writing this letter. Of those four options, really the only option, and most scholars would agree, that this is James, the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't identify himself in that way. As a matter of fact, he doesn't really identify and say much about himself. But what he does is very critical. He would have been well known. He, he, he would have been one who the, the believers would have known and been shepherded by. So this James here that begins this letter is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I say half-brother to Jesus because Jesus' mother conceived him by the Holy Spirit. Joseph was not Jesus' biological father, but his legal father. However, after Jesus was born, we're told in the New Testament that Joseph and Mary had 
more children. You can take your Bibles real quick and go with me. This is a critical point, especially in light of living in times in which we exist, where the Roman Catholic Church has taken this and made it what it's not. And in Matthew chapter 1, verse 25, after Jesus was already born, it says this, well, we'll go to verse 24, it says, And Joseph awoke from his sleep, and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, took Mary as his wife. But he kept her a virgin, and notice this, until she gave birth to a son. Speaking of Jesus, whom the angel said, Mary is pregnant with, and he called his name Jesus. So, so Joseph is not Jesus' father. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. But after Jesus was born, Joseph and Mary had more children. Jesus actually had about six siblings that we know of, four brothers and two sisters, minimum two sisters. Those times, families were big. Um, and so that's why when you, when you get to the account of the feeding of the 5,000, it's not unheard of to say, well, it was just uh, the, the men that were accounted for but not including the women and children. And you include all that. And then you include even the household, the servants who would be part of that family. You're looking at 25,000 people. But, but, but Jesus had six other siblings. We, we notice this because if you go to Matthew 13 again, Matthew chapter 13 I look at verse 55 when Jesus comes back and he turns and, and sets uh, to do some miracles in Nazareth where he grew up at. It was a sad return because the people didn't believe in him. As a matter of fact, the end of that passage in verse 58, it says he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. And what was their treatment of Jesus? In verse 55, we're told this, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, and Simon, and Judas? And, and, and they're like, hey, we know this guy. We've seen him grow. There's nothing special about him. And what this reveals is that Mary had other children. James was the second oldest of after Jesus. Second oldest. And this is important for you to know because in the 3rd and 4th century AD, the idea started to gain weight that, that the Roman Catholic invented the idea of the perpetual virginity of Mary. That is that Mary continued after Jesus was born as a virgin. And therefore was revered as the mother of God or the queen of heaven. And so as the mother of God or the queen of heaven, she wouldn't defile herself in sexual relations and have more children. But the Bible never uses those terms to refer to Mary in that way. And not only that, as we look at the text as we saw, just even in that one verse, you can see that also in Mark chapter 6, verse 3. That Mary had other children. And not only that, it's an unbiblical view of sex within marriage. Between a man and a woman committed for life. Because you see, sex is designed by God and should be upheld as a beautiful gift given to a married couple. And so, that idea is a false idea, is a heretical idea to say that Mary also is one who is sinless. 
but she had other children. And James was often, even from the Roman Catholic perspective, considered either one, the stepbrother to Jesus from from a, a previous marriage that Joseph had, or they redefined the term as brother to redefine it as cousin. It was the cousin of Jesus. But there is a word in the New Testament that exists for cousin. And James in the New Testament doesn't use that when it refers to his siblings. So the New Testament makes it clear that after Jesus was born, Joseph and Mary had other children. And this is very critical because in our understanding, who is this James? This James is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ. What was James' life, though, like growing up? What was his life growing up? Well, I would tell you this. James grew up in the most spiritually privileged home to have ever existed. He had Jesus living in his house. All of the siblings grew up in the most spiritual, privileged home. Well, we're told sometime after Jesus' 12-year-old years, uh, uh, time in the temple, where he and Mary come and they leave, and they leave Jesus in the temple, and, he, and they, for three days he's missing, and then they come back. That is the last time that we hear of Joseph. So sometime between that and Jesus' ministry, somewhere in there, and, and scholars believe that it was earlier on in, Je- in, in the, the family's life that Joseph had died. Sometime early on. So Jesus would have assumed the role of a, the substitute father, or, the, or you could say the surrogate father for the children. He, as being the older of the home, would have been responsible for first the business, being a carpenter, providing for the family, taking care of the needs for the family. But he also would have been responsible, responsible for the spiritual training of the family. In light of Deuteronomy chapter 6, he would have been the one who at every point, at every time, uh, in every way, while you're lying, while you're awake, where you're going by your way, he would be talking of the word of God to all his half-siblings. Can you imagine that? Jesus would have taught them the scriptures all the time. And not only would he have taught them the scriptures, but right before their own eyes, they would see it lived out in perfection. Because Jesus would have never sinned in thought, in word, in deed. They had the, 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 the perfect teacher shepherding their hearts with a constant conversation over the Word of God. They had the, 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 the flawless example of, a, of living a life that honors God. This family got firsthand experience of who this God man is. And James had the only greatest example anyone could ever have of a life committed to the Father. Everything he did, perfect. Every application of the scriptures, every instruction from the word. That's incredible if you think about that. Just just pause for a moment and consider the greatest teacher ever to exist and will ever exist was the teacher and trainer and shepherd of the man who wrote this letter. And so you would automatically assume that when that happens, 
when, when, when we have the right combination, that the response of this, these family members would be immediate repentance and submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's not what happened. That's not what happened at all. But what was the response of, uh, of James and his family to Jesus' claim of being the Messiah? Well, I want you to turn to, to Mark chapter 3, and we can see this here for a moment. In Mark chapter 3, and we will find out that the response to Jesus was not a positive response, but rather a negative response. It reveals the hardness of, of man's heart apart from God coming in and regenerating them. Man will continue to remain in unbelief and reject Christ. And such was the siblings of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 20, in this context, normally what takes a huge uh, center stage is the, what they refer to as the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is what the, the Pharisees were doing to Jesus' works because they were accrediting that to Satan. But I want you to notice in verse 20, where we find the first time it mentions Jesus' family coming to meet him after he began his ministry. And what you find here is unbelief. In verse 20 we read, And he came home, and here, home not necessarily to Nazareth, but home, his, his, his headquarters was in Capernaum. And it was in, in Peter's house. And it said that the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. Now that's, that's a pretty crowded spot to not be able to eat. I mean, normally you could find a little tiny spot that you can actually move around and eat. But here, the idea is exactly that. There was so pressing upon Jesus and the disciples, and there were so many people that food was not even considered at that point necessary or, or unable to eat it. And notice in verse 21, when his own people, literally family, heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. <laughs> the, the idea of, of taking custody is literally the idea to arrest somebody. To go and seize them and take control of them and get them out of there. Why did they do this? Because they said he has lost his senses. He's mentally unbalanced. He's, he's acting like a, a religious fanatic. They thought that he was going crazy. His, his zeal borderlined of insanity. And again, what this reveals is that they were unwilling to accept that Jesus was a long awaited and promised Messiah. Instead, they thought he was crazy. So then Jesus, in verses 22 to 30, has a discussion with the religious leaders about their blasphemy against him. And then at the end of this chapter, beginning in verse 31, we're told here, Again, a further response, and then even what Jesus says, true family members, those who belong to his household, what is their mark and what are they defined as? And he says this, beginning in verse 31, Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Incredible. 
Jesus says that obedience to God's word shows a person belongs to his family. And though James, the half-brother of the Lord, did not submit to Jesus' lordship over his life, this statement that Jesus made is very critical. Very critical. Especially the emphasis that James that it played in the book of James. Again, though, though James did not submit at this time to Jesus, in the timing of God, when God the Holy Spirit saved him, these words were the hallmark of his life. So much so that he was known as James the Just, the, the, the man who was a, the, a pious man, a man who lived a holy life before God. They were the hallmark of his life while he was shepherding God's people at the beginning of the church in Jerusalem. So right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we see that his family rejected him. His siblings rejected him. They didn't believe in him. They didn't believe in him, that he was who he claimed to be. And again, keeping in mind the way in which they would have grown up. So now let's fast forward to about six months before the crucifixion. Six months before the crucifixion. And you go to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. And remember, when we were in this passage, we saw this ourselves. Beginning in verse 7, or verse 1, we read, After these things Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of the booze, was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, Leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And notice what John says regarding his brothers. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So not only did they reject Christ at the beginning of his ministry, though being aware of his works, they even say that there. They saw his works. They heard him teach. They heard him teach when he was young, when they were young, and they heard him teach as an adult. They saw the miracles that, and the things that only God can do. And yet, even here, they still remained in unbelief. Of all the years of a perfect holy life, a flawless teaching of the scriptures, they still rejected Christ. This, my friends, was James. No other person would have received the most glorious shepherding and the living example of godliness than James, the half-brother of the Lord. Which for, let me just pause here for a moment and just say, for those of us who are discipling, as, as we are called to invest our lives and make disciples, for, for, for parents who are constantly pouring their lives in their kids, teaching them the scriptures, And yet they remain in unbelief. Listen, the Lord knows that. He understands that. He's been there, even with his own family. And so understand that he, 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 he taught them, he loved them, he poured all of their life all the while they rejected him and remained indifferent to the truth and to the gospel lived out before them. He understands and he knows. But what it ought to do in your life is encourage you to remain faithful no matter what. 
That's all that is required of us, is faithfulness. Because God saves in His timing and in His way. James, by God's grace, did not remain in rebellion against the Lord Jesus. So when did James become a believer of the Lord Jesus Christ? We're not specifically told. We are told in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, uh, where Paul says that Jesus made a special appearance after his resurrection to James. And so sometime after the resurrection, in those 40 days, James would have come to submit himself to the Lord Jesus Christ. We see him in Acts chapter 1 in the upper room after the ascension. In verse 14, Acts chapter 1 says, These all were with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. With his brothers. So in that short of a time span, James submitted himself to Jesus as the Son of God, as the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament, who would come and die at his first coming to pay for his sin. And so you want to know where the gospel is in this letter of James? It begins with the first word, James. <laughs> Often people criticize the book of James as being devoid of the gospel. Too much law, too much things to do, not enough grace. There is so much to do. As a matter of fact, we'll find this out. Half, half of the verses in James of 108 verses, 54 of those verses contain a command. Incredible. So people would criticize you and say, well, where's the gospel? The gospel is in James, the one who is writing this letter. That's why James' purpose in writing this letter is not to introduce new doctrinal teaching, but rather to show that the, light, that the gospel changes your life. It is visible. You can see it happen. Exhibit A right here in my life. James. What God did on the inside by His grace is then, James says, manifested outwardly in a life, in the life of a believer. This is exactly what Jesus said in, in Mark chapter 4. Remember in the, in the parable of the, of the soils that all believers who are genuinely saved, all believers who, who belong to God, who by God's working of regeneration in their own souls will produce fruit. Not all will be the same production of fruit, but there will always be visible fruit. Jesus says some 30, some 16, some 100. We often, when we are working with people, want everybody to be at the 100 level. <laughs> and then I'm like, well, I have to tell you this. My life, I'm not even sure I'm even close to 30. That's what often seems like it. But there is... That progression, there is that fruit. And so James says in his book, as he's writing this right at the beginning, he, 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 in introducing himself, we had a pause where we often hurry up and move on. We pause here to consider the gospel on display in transforming a man who sat under the Lord's teaching for many years. You say over 30 years maybe? depending on how old James was when he came to know Christ. 30 years. And we want results like now. We want to go to the jail and see everybody converted, right? 
We want to go and street preach and we want to see people uh, coming to repentance in Christ. We want to see our kids. Hey, I thought, it, you know, didn't Proverbs say that, it, you know, if I taught them the scriptures, they're not going to uh, uh, go wayward? Isn't that what, what I was hoping in? Yeah. That's the, first of all, that's not a promise. It's actually a warning to parents to be actively involved with your kids. Regeneration is the work of God. Salvation is the work of God. In His timing. And in His way. But when it happens, there is complete change. And so James says true salvation uh, displays visibly active change. And so... 14 years after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, he reminds the believers of what life should continue to look like under the Lordship of Christ. All that Jesus taught was not wasted. All the investment that he did in living his life before those who sat under his teaching, before his public ministry, and then in his public ministry, all of it, all of it was not wasted, but was prepared and being used by God to, in His timing, bring about the supernatural work of saving Him and His siblings by the power of the gospel. As a matter of fact, this is how James describes his very own conversion. Notice in verse 18, uh, James chapter 1, verse 18, he says, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creature. Now I want you to notice this. Where? Where does he say that? He says, In the exercise of God's will, he brought us. Do you notice that James includes himself in the midst of him talking to the believers and saying, do you want to know how God saves his people is through the regenerating work? And guess what? He did that to me. And he, as he's shepherding the, the church, the believers, the Jewish believers, he's saying, this is how you too were saved. Again, he shows us the method of God's salvation always is through the preaching and teaching of the word. And it might not be in that moment in which you are doing that, but it's not uh, uh, outside of that. That is exactly what the Holy Spirit uses in his timing and in his way to bring about genuine salvation. This is James. This is the gospel on display. He is exhibit one. He is saying, look, look at what God has done in my life. And as a matter of fact, he will describe himself here in a moment of, of that very thing. So what happened to James after he became a believer? Well, scripture tells us that he was well known. He was the, the pastor and shepherd of that early uh, uh, church. In Acts chapter 2, we read that 3,000 people were converted through the preaching and teaching. Again, preaching and teaching of Peter. Peter and James and the apostles would have become the elders and shepherds of that early church. As a matter of fact, James shepherded that church for over 30 years. 30 years. He was a man who, according to 1 Corinthians 9.5, that he was, he was married. He was a man who knew the scriptures. And, and, and again, rightly so. Jesus was his teacher. <laughs> he, he knew his Bible. He sat under the teaching of Christ, as Christ exposited the scriptures over and over and over and over again. And not only that, even early on in his ministry, he followed Christ. He, he, he hung around that crowd that was so richly blessed when 
Jesus taught and spoke. That's why in the book of James, there's a lot of similarities between the book of James and the Sermon on the Mount. And by the way, I was thinking about doing the Sermon on the Mount first before we went to the book of James, because I think that would have led really well to it. But then we just jumped in here. So we were so we're here. One scholar says that there are about 14 comparisons to the Sermon on the Mount. We'll make those comparisons. We'll, we'll go back and come back as we go through the book of James. And we'll show you the influence of the teaching of Christ in uh, unlocked by the Holy Spirit in his heart and life when he became a believer that now was useful to the church of God. He was such a respected elder and shepherd of the church that he, when the issue came up, the issue of salvation and the inclusion of Gentiles, he presided over that council in Acts chapter 15 and by the kindness of God led to the decision of that meeting. And according to the book of Acts, James then became, again, one of the shepherds, one of the elders, one of the pastors of the Jerusalem church for nearly 30 years. He spent his life proving and showing and demonstrating that Jesus is the Messiah. And then in light of Jesus, the Messiah, our lives, those who, those who, who claim to believe in him must demonstrate that by their actions. Paul would later refer to him as one of the pillars of the church in Galatians 1.19 and 2.9. And though James was one of the elders and pastors of the Jerusalem church, he was literally the, the, the leader among equals. And so writing this letter some 13, 14 years after, between 44 and 49 AD, it serves for us as the earliest New Testament letter of the grace of God in the life of a man who lived in rebellion, who lived in indifference, who did not care about who Jesus was until God miraculously saved him. And so when you read the book of James, you have to keep that in mind. It is this regeneration that the gospel gives and, and does to our lives through the, through the power of the Holy Spirit and making us alive. That then therefore there is a desire and a commitment to obey God and to demonstrate a love for Him in obedience to His truth. James is exhibit A of the gospel transformation. My friends, the same, the same means in which we have in making disciples is the same that our Lord employed. The Word of God. The Word of God. James did not become a believer because he saw the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, how do you know that? Remember in, in Luke 16, when Jesus um, was given the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? One goes to Abraham's bosom, heaven, and the other to Hades or hell. He, Laz, uh, uh, the rich man, is suffering, and he says, "Hey, you know, send somebody from the dead. Because if some, if my siblings saw somebody rise from the dead, then they will believe." And Jesus said, "No. They have Moses and the prophets, and if they don't believe in him, they definitely won't believe in anybody who raises from the dead." Incredible. The value of the Word of God upheld by the King of Glory, the author of that text and of that Scriptures, who, who, who applied it over and over and over again, and there was no results in his sibling's life until after God did His miraculous work in His timing and through the preaching of His Word. My friends... God saves His people 
in his timing and through the preaching of his word. And this should be a great encouragement for us to continue to instruct, continue to disciple, continue to pray for those God has placed in our lives who are asking to be helped and, and want to grow to invest our lives in even if we don't see any of the results that we would like to see in that moment. Trusting that God will do the work eventually in his heart, in their hearts. Whether it would be in the hardness of his heart, of their hearts, or whether it would be, in the case of James, a transformation, a true transformation. This is James. So one of the lessons that we can learn is that God saves in His timing and in His way. The second lesson is obedience is the mark of a true believer. And you can see that in the rest of, the, of that first part of that verse. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I read that to you as it reads in the New American Standard. But that word bondservant is literally the word doulos in the original. Most translations have it as servant or bondservant. The Net Bible, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, and the Legacy Standard Bible translate that to what the word, the Greek word, doulos, literally is. And that is slave. Slave. And this is critical because in the, in the, in the original, that word is actually at the end. It's actually literally James, a James of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, slave. And what he's trying to show you is, this is who he is a slave of. Very emphatic. Kind of lose that a little bit here in the English, just to sound more like how we speak. But it is critical. And we've gone through this and we talked about well, the difference between what does it mean to be a slave versus what does it mean to be a servant. Even though that they might have overlapping responsibilities. And I love MacArthur's book that's very helpful on this, a book Slave, that helps us to clarify the difference between those two. He says, in one sense, servants are hired. Some, and they have some freedom. They can choose who they work for and what they do. Some even have personal rights. But a slave is owned, has no freedom, no autonomy or rights. They, they are the property of another. They are their own owner's possession. And they must obey the will of his master without question or argument. And so MacArthur says this, He is the master and uh, the owner. We are his possession. He is the king, the Lord. The Son of God, we are His subjects and His subordinates. In a word, we are His slaves. This is incredible. It's really incredible. Because the guy who could have dropped a name and brag, who had the right because he, I mean, he is the half-brother of the Lord. Could have said, James, the brother of Jesus. But he doesn't say that. As a matter of fact, even Jude, the, 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 the writer also who bears the, the letter, who, which also bears the name of the other half-brother of the Lord, also begins his letter like this. Jude, a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't take the time to say and boast about himself, but rather he wants to put the emphasis upon Christ. And, and as a slave, he, he calls himself Christ's slave. He, and therefore, as his slave, what he is writing is not his own words, but rather the words of his master. Through his servant. And so this letter carries that kind of authority of the king of kings and the lord of lords. It also demonstrates the fact that he truly belongs to Jesus Christ. It carries the most glorious 
benefits a believer can have. James is saying, I am doing what I'm doing because I am a slave of Christ and I just, I just am glad to do what I'm told. He says, my life is not my own. I don't get to decide what to, what to obey from God's word or what not to obey. I, I don't get to determine when to obey and when not to obey. The slave must only do his master's will. His master's bidding. There, there's no room for negotiation. There's no room to discuss, dis, discuss the, the, the terms and conditions by which he is to be obeyed. That all carries under this very title of slave. This is critical from the one coming from the one who rejected Jesus until the resurrection and ascension. But notice the designation. It doesn't stop there, right? It says, James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he right now, in this point, has demonstrated to you and I that what and who Jesus is and what he believes about Jesus is that he is the God-man. It, it, it upholds the deity of Jesus Christ. That the, the one who walked in human flesh, the one who lived the life, the one that he was part of, He is the Son of God. He is God. One commentator says, For a strong monotheist like, like James, it would have been unthinkable thus to name Jesus Christ as equal with God if he rejected his true identity. And so... James redeems this and brings back to the audience that he is writing to. And he says, listen, remember, we belong to another. We've been purchased by the blood of Christ. We don't get to do what we want to do. But it carries the greatest hope. Because a slave doesn't have the cares of a free man for all that he needs. For his responsibilities provided by his master. And he serves the most gracious master of all the universe. But notice again, just, just in the change and shift of James, and again, the, the, not only in his life, though not lived out here before us, but also in his view of Christ. Notice the three titles that he refers to the Lord. The Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, we're talking about titles. He says he sees Christ as Lord. He is his master. He's the one who rules over his life. He sees him as Jesus. The human one who walked is none other than his Savior. And he is the Christ. That's not his last name. But rather the title reserved for Messiah the long-awaited one to come to rescue his people from their sins. That is the transformation. And he says, this is why uh, he writes the way he does in the book of James. This is why when you read it, it's going to be convicting. It's going to hurt because oftentimes we're comfortable. We, we, and especially in times when it counts and, and we have to pay and take it under the chin for the Lord. When, when, when you are no longer received uh, by others as something that you have to say is good for their soul. This was the, the audience in which James are writing. James is writing to a people who know the truth, who have seen, who have been taught by this pastor for 30 years. Who because of, and we will see here in the moment, because of persecution have fled. And instead of becoming more like Christ and obeying Christ, they become less. And so James says, no, you know what? If you have true salvation, it will demonstrate in your life in obedience to me. This is James' view of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is the reason why he's writing the way that he does. Like I said, in 108 verses, 
there are 54 commands. By the way, 108 verses 175 in Psalm 119. Now you can see the difference of that, right? This is a whole letter, one chapter in the Psalms. James says, knowing the right things, knowing the right things, if they don't produce change in a person's life, that is not true saving faith. Which is why in his letter throughout it, he will bring scenarios and situations that the people find themselves in to be able to examine the genuineness of their faith. The, the quality of their daily life and attitude and actions. And if there's no change and no difference, then it is dead faith. Because if you have this view of Christ, who rescued you, who saved you, who is the Lord and, and, and ruler of your life, then it will show in your actions. This is how we are to think of ourselves. This is how we are to think of who Jesus is. And this is how we are to approach the book that we're going to study, which then therefore leads, because of what he's done, to true change. We, we have, if, if, if we are the slave of God, we will be able to do what God has called us to do. It is the purpose of James. And so finally, as I see the time already gone, I do want to finish, so I'm not going to do this into two parts, but I'm going to finish this, so we're going to plow a little bit longer. Not only um, is God uh, saved in His time and in His way in obedience, the mark of a true believer, the third lesson that we want, James wants us to see here is that God ordains life circumstances to put our faith in display, or to put faith in display. See, he makes a connection between the audience that he is writing to, and also the suffering and the circumstances that they find themselves in. And you notice what he does. Notice the, the audience that James is writing to in verse 1. To the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. This word, the twelve tribes, is literally James is writing to a Jewish audience. And, and rightly so, those who would have been in uh, Pentecost would have been specifically Jews. That early church was Jewish. Which, by the way, part of, part of the suffering that was used, that God brought, the persecution that he brought, was for the purpose of the church to scatter and do the work that God is calling them to do, and that is to make disciples. It's not always bad when you're persecuted. It's actually some very purifying things that happen in the body and in the message that goes around. So James is writing to, to a, 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 a Christian Jewish audience. He calls in my brethren, my beloved, several times throughout his letter. He refers in chapter 2, verse 2, uh, to the synagogue, or the, the, the assembly of uh, the believers. But he also, in chapter 5, verse 14, he refers to them as to, to the people. They go to the, to the elders of the church. And so he's writing to those who put their faith in Jesus as a Messiah. Who, who, who claim to have believed and submitted to Jesus. The one who was promised in the Old Testament. And notice the circumstance of this audience that he's writing. Who are dispersed abroad. Literally, it is a word, a technical term in the, in the Greek. It's the word uh, dysphoria. Or dispersion. It's a compound word that means through and sowing. Literally the scattering of seeds. And so James is writing to those who no longer live in Jerusalem. By the time he's writing here, by the time he's writing this letter, there would have been two incidents, incidences in which, or events in which uh, God would have used to scatter all of those who were, or for the most part, a lot of them who were, no longer living in Jerusalem. You find that in Acts chapter 8, when after the stoning of Stephen, all of a sudden a mass amount of them left because of that persecution. Remember 
Who was hanging out there at that time? Paul. They would have left the church because of persecution. But then more immediate to James' context was in Acts chapter 12 when when there was a full-scale onslaught of persecution against the believers by Herod Agrippa. And the point that James is trying to make is this. James is writing to people who have lost all that they are familiar with, all that they have treasured, all that that was precious to them, their homes, their wealth, their money, even their families. And now they're living in a a pagan land, a land, a foreign land that was never to be their, their area of dwelling. And so James writes to them, to encourage them to still, in the midst of that time, to remain faithful to the one whom they have pledged to submit to, whom they are slaves to. James was concerned that these believers would have given into impatience and bitterness and materialism and disunity and ultimately spiritual apathy because of the persecution they faced after these two specific events. And again, this explains why the letter does not have any new doctrinal or more doctrinal uh, teachings, but rather James as their pastor, they, they, they remember what he taught them. They know what he said to them. It's why James, the purpose of James is to focus on, on practical Christian living. Often called the Proverbs of the New Testament. Not only critical for life. Not only was it critical for those who were dispersed and abroad and scattered, were suffering persecution, the hatred of a pagan world. James says, it is crucial for all believers as well. See, James wanted to, to these believers to know that what was going on in their lives was not by happenstance or even the evil intentions of those who hated Christians, even though those were real threats and they were being sinned against upon by an evil pagan world. He wants them to know that this was God's plan to spread the gospel, but also for their own spiritual Maturity and growth. And so you read here this connection. He says, greetings. It actually has the force of a command in the original. It is a word to rejoice. And it is connected to the next verse. Count it all joy. It's the same word. And so James connects this, this thought of, of being a slave of God, of, being, uh, of their circumstances, to not only their trials that they're facing, he will later on in chapter 5 address their prosperity. And he says that no matter what situation you find yourself in, no matter if you are suffering trials, temptations, or you are in prospering, God is in control of your circumstances because they comes from His gracious hand and often to reveal your faith, to reveal what you really are made of. Isn't that amazing? That oftentimes those circumstances, whether we have a lot or we have nothing and we are suffering in in, in the most gruesome ways, it reveals a lot about where our hope is, where our our true confidences, and by God's kindness, it helps us to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. That's the book of James. That's who he's talking to. And so James says, what you know must change your life. You must put it to practice. Or as Tom Pennington says, behavior betrays belief Behavior betrays belief. In other words, uh, the way you live, the way you react, the way you respond to all that goes on in your life reveals what you truly believe. You could have all the right knowledge, you could have all the right understanding, but the way you live 
is the way you actually believe. And it's very critical. And by the gracious kindness of God, it helps us again to examine ourselves, to deal within what we see. Oh, Lord, I saw myself just respond in complete distrust and um, self-reliance this week when I was sick. Man, praise God that he reveals. It's like, then what do you do with that? You go to him who alone can bring true rest to your soul. The one that we find our righteousness in. You confess your sin and you make a plan to to repent and turn from that so that you would live under the authority of the one who called you and saved you. And so James wants them to know that God is sovereign over what goes on in their lives. And my friends, this is exactly what James wants you and I to know as well. He is sovereign over all that goes on in our lives. And if we understand that God saves us and we learn this lesson that he, he saves in his time and in his way, and we know that obedience is the hallmark of a believer and that God ordains life circumstances to put faith on display. If we grasp those lessons, if you understand those truths, you, then we are ready to venture into this amazing book and be able to be impacted in our lives in the most practical way. The book of James is going to get into your kitchen. It's going to open the cupboards. You know those drawers that have a bunch of junk in it that you just random stuff in there? And we're going to, he's going to start taking that out and just saying, let's sort this out here. That's incredible. And let's align ourselves in worship of our God. The man who was trained by the greatest teacher saved by the only Lord and Savior, became a faithful slave of Christ and shepherding his people. And now we get to sit under his feet, who sat under the Lord's feet, and learn how our lives are to be shaped and formed in love to our King. So, Father, thank you so much for the joy it is, again, to come to this book. To wrestle in our hearts the realities are there. To pause for a moment and consider what is before us, and particularly in this particular verse. And to see you sovereignly change and save in your timing and through the preaching of your word, the life of James. And that as a slave of God, we are yours. And that there will be evidences of obedience in our lives. And that you will bring about all the circumstances that is necessary to cause us to put our faith on display, to reveal to us what we truly are resting upon for our salvation. Oh Father. May you use this. Letter as we begin this book. To change us. So that we might be. Useful in your hands. For your glory. We thank you. For this time together. This morning. And for what you are going to do. In and through our lives. In Jesus precious name I pray. Amen.